Yoga and Mental Health Asana Part 3 The Mental and the Physical The Rift The pain seeds in the rift between thinking and feeling, knowing and being, now and when, birth and death. I and another, self and nature. Scattered are pieces we make, some parts of flesh, some bits of breath, some drops of tears, some lumps of fears, some strands of love, each a slice of self. This rift is but a molten darkness. Look closely through, pierce with a glance to break the trance. Terrifying as it seems, an alchemy of healing is stirred by the very rift. Dear friends, so far, in parts 1 and 2, we have seen that mental illness at its core is a disturbance of the mind. This means that every time we are disturbed, we could say we are temporarily mentally ill. Pain is intended to be a purely physical danger signaling mechanism. We need physical pain to avoid danger to our body. In a state of mental equilibrium, we experience happiness. But a disturbed state of mind takes over this pain mechanism and creates psychological pain, which results in illusionary fears, defenses, and pain patterns, which could lead to physical conditions, forcing the brain and body into ill health. This is due to the agency of asmita, the quality of our mind to confuse what we experience with who we are. Having established the fact that mental illness is experienced as psychological pain, the question arises, what can we do to avoid experiencing psychological pain? In part three, we begin with exploring the premise set forth by the ancients that the problem is not in the mind, but the mind itself is the problem. From here, we see how, after a century of probing, science is now opening up to the possibility that at the root of mental illness is a lack of activity and a sedentary lifestyle. Exercise is now beginning to be considered as the wonder treatment to mental illness. We look at all the benefits of exercise. We touch upon the three kinds of exercise and then go in-depth into isometric training as the best suited method for healing the body and mind. In spite of all its benefits, most people find it difficult to be motivated to exercise regularly. 
In this blog, we will ask the question, is it because we are not naturally made to exercise? If yes, then what is the answer? We see athletes, film stars, soldiers, and a small band of people who exercise regularly. Is it because they have found a way to stay motivated? We will see that to successfully lose pain in our lives, we need to not just have goals, but enter into what we can call the goal state. In conclusion, we point out that asana seems to take care of the question of how to stay motivated in our quest to become mentally well and heal. We close on this note, which sets the stage for part four, where we then plunge into asana, the fourth limb of Ashtanga Yoga. So let's begin part three. We would like to begin with salutations to the wise, the ancients, the teachers, with a few lines composed by the mystic Adi Shankara in his work in Sanskrit called Dakshinamurti Stotram. The entire world, a city seen in a mirror, the seeing happening within, a witnessing of the world, as if dreamed up in sleep by the power of Maya. This is known directly during awakening when duality ceases. Salutations to the teacher who embodies this mystic knowledge. Though these lines might seem difficult to grasp, we will soon see they hold an insight into the subject we are exploring in this series of blogs. Mind, O oh mind, O oh mind, a word that is one of a kind. Like space, it is all pervasive and yet perennially elusive. Like air, it is the agency of movement and yet no equation can capture its ferment. Like water, it pervades all that matters and yet it can never be grasped with the fingers. But above all, it's like fire which can burn every bit of creation and yet is helpless to burn itself into willful oblivion. Mind, oh mind. Such is the paradox of our kind. Alone, we are the freest of all, but divided, we are ourselves the most excruciating bind. The entire genome has been sequenced. Space is being passionately romanced. Whole organs of the body can be grown in a dish. Yet, between modern physics and medicine, there remains one unfulfilled wish, a chapter in the annals of modern science called The Mind, Origin and Destiny. They have been the analysts 
the behavioralists, the cognitive therapists, who have looked at the mind and its unending kinetics. But once they reach the very edge where matter meets consciousness, steadily move away, shunning the subtle without any reason or apology. Could this itself be the beginning of the season of illness? That we don't anymore look out for that which we can't pin down to atoms, molecules and biology. And so, we don't anymore embrace something that defies this material theology. While happiness remains our goal, instead of simply being happy, we are seeking it in things that are shaky. Quantum physicists have always said, there is way too much out there beyond material. And yet, it was the quantum physicists who, with their insights, helped create some of the most dramatic material events in our recent history that seem to have given us the guts and the gall to create such things as the atom bomb, discover the chromosomes, ascend to space, capture images of the brain, biotechnology, and microchips. We adore the human brain for having come up with these inventions, but maybe we forget that they are not products of the brain alone. It was our minds that were instrumental in fathoming these depths of creation. Of all the trouble we are dealing with currently, a silent pandemic that is growing along with every setback, personal or global, is mental disturbance, anxiety, depression. Is this a consequence of neglect, of not paying attention to our capacity for an inherent drive towards happiness? The ancients would say yes. They would have gone many steps further and added, the mind itself is our creation. Until we don't realize its power to gratify us and cause pain, till we don't solve the problem of happiness, we are doomed to living life in a stupor. The entire world, a city seen in a mirror, the seeing happening within, a witnessing of the world, as if dreamed up in sleep, by the power of Maya. Around 600 years back, Leonardo da Vinci could paint the Mona Lisa, conceive of a pinhole camera, ponder over a flying machine, realize a golden ratio in the human body, dwell on the geometry that pervades the musical scale. Closer to our own times, we have legends like the Bengali filmmaker Shatyajit Ray. He wrote stories, poems, illustrated every scene of his films in storyboards with his own hands. He composed music, edited and produced a magazine, started the film society movement in India, gave us the masterpiece film Pather Panchali, where for the first time a scene was lit by bouncing light from the top. It seemed there was no limit to what his mind could come up with. 
We've seen in our travels in parts of Africa, Nepal, India, this is a way of life for the masses. A farmer hums away a complex tune, not even aware that he is spontaneously composing as he goes about repairing the harness of his bullock. His meal is nothing more than some gruel and freshly plucked greens from the edge of the forest. A housewife somewhere in rural India comes up with an entire audiovisual presentation, including painting, poetry and song on the virus, all completely original, done as an expression of her life. We don't call them artists or innovators, but that seems perfect. Because doing so could make them specialists. Here, their effort is like the clouds. When they get saturated, they rain down. They wet every blade of grass, leaf and inch of soil. They don't look at the economy of raining on a rocky plot of land where there is no scope for plants to grow. And that becomes a great spot for the replenishment of the water table. Unlike our systems of damming water, using methods to water only plants and trees that are useful to us, creating real barrenness all around. Nature is not so economical, but nature is balanced. In our ancient way of life, the mind was used in many ways, in many of its dimensions. Now we have entered the era of specialization. Earlier, when nomadic families of Central Asia together weaved one drug over a couple of years or more, everyone did everything from preparing the dyes to selecting the threads to the weaving. Somehow, they could make a living. Now the pressure on them is to produce numbers to create an assembly line, to specialize, to gain a small area of expertise, neglecting the whole, creating areas of excessive fertility and absolute barrenness in their own minds, causing great imbalance and pain. Just like we recognize various levels of not being fit and healthy on a physical scale, through testing our blood sugar, cholesterol, blood pressure, lipid count. We say it's borderline, better reduce weight or sugar intake, salt intake, eat more fiber, drink more water, go for a walk. Similarly, it's important to recognize the early signs of mental illness, which are the mildest form of anxiety, moods, and like we saw in part two, any chronic condition, so that we can easily work with them before they escalate. The approach of yoga goes a step further than prevention. It says, if you're not happy, which means we are disturbed, there is no third state. So till we get to being happy, it is clear that we have work to do. The bubble and joy 
of the innocent and an untrained mind. We are talking about just this quality of the mind. It's about the lack of divisions in consciousness embodied in the innocence, curiosity and playfulness of a child. People who are rooted in nature, they seem to retain some of this. And it seems to make all the difference between making you vulnerable to mental illness or prone to ease and wellness. In the last 150 years, experts have tried talking to unhappy people, analyzing what they say, ascribing unhappiness to a part of you that is hidden. They called it the unconscious. On the other hand, physiologists focused on exploring what happens in the brain and the nervous system when we are unhappy. They found brain areas function differently. Certain chemicals called neurotransmitters like serotonin, dopamine, endorphins. They found these were high when we are well and low in those who were mentally ill. Another powerful molecule, cortisol, its levels are higher in those who are constantly stressed. Melatonin, which is responsible for our sleep, its levels are low in people who are insomniac. And when these are administered artificially, the moods change. Thousands of discoveries such as these allow us to know what happens in our executive command center, the brain, when we are not happy and are stressed. A physiologist administers a pill that can give you a boost of one of these molecules and instantly change your mood. But again, like much of modern medicine, it does not amount to an insight into mental illness or into happiness. In the Hunt cohort study, one of the biggest study of mental health spanning more than three decades now, over 33,000 people were followed for 11 years in Sweden. It was found that doing one hour per week of moderate exercise brought down the incidence of depression by 12%. And if the frequency is increased, the results were better. The study recommended exercise as a strategy to prevent depression in communities. In another study, exercise was found to have a protective effect against panic attacks. In a meta-analysis of 30 randomized clinical trials on the effectiveness of exercise in treating depression, it was found that exercise was as effective as standard drug-based treatments. Exercise and increase in physical activity reduce anxiety depression and stress in people suffering from bipolar disorder. In a 12-week study that combined aerobic and strength training for schizophrenia patients, it was found that the exercise group showed significant improvements in their condition. It was also found that exercise increased the size of the hippocampal area of the brain 
which shrinks in case of several mental illnesses, including schizophrenia. Physical activity has been found to delay the onset of dementia, where the brain loses many of its functionalities due to premature aging. Exercise has been seen to improve communication performance, verbal fluency and disruptive behavior in Alzheimer's. All this means that in the absence of a therapist, an expert on mental illness and drugs, a regular walk, warm-up, a few squats, walking up a flight of steps, some push-ups, a few stretches, done regularly, could change your status from ill to well.